Well, we want to turn in our Bibles to 1 John, where we left off last week, and look at a subject that's really woven into the very heart of the Christian gospel and who we are and why we are and why we are here today, what we're about. In fact, uh, what I want to do to begin, and I don't think you can understand what we're adding or layering on today without backing up and overlapping with last week a little bit. So I want to go back and pick up three verses that we closed with last week in 1 John chapter 1. And so you may want to look on the screen or look in your own scripture text. The New American Standard of that verse says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. John, now an old man, writing maybe 60 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, with all the other apostles gone, he's, he's writing his account of the life of Christ in the Gospel of John, but he's writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, these other letters that perhaps circulate with that Gospel. And he's cautioning the church, his initial audience, but the church for the, the next 2,000 years and beyond. Don't get into the position of thinking you don't have a spiritual need. Don't allow pride to begin to fill you where you begin to think you're so righteous you don't have needs. John says everybody's got needs. And if we uh, say that we don't have sin in our lives and don't have spiritual needs, we're just deceiving maybe some other people, but most of all, we're deceiving ourselves, he says. And he writes with great truth and great spiritual authority. He says when that happens, the truth is just not in us. We're not operating according to the truth of what the scripture has to say we're not being realistic about our own spiritual needs if in verse 9 i said last week if you're only going to memorize a few verses of scripture here would be a good one to put on your short list if we confess our sins and the word confess you take the word uh, hama h-o-m-o which is a link to a bunch of greek words and english words and you link that uh, to the word that means word and then you make a verb out of it if you can follow all of that you come up with what we usually translate as confess which means to say the same thing when you speak in agreement with God you hear John write those words and say God I get it I understand I do have spiritual need and this in my life and that in my life don't match up with the standard of God and I confess that I acknowledge that I agree with you that those things are problems in my life. John says, if we'll do that, if we will confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous. In other words, he has grounds to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the key. I'm always trying to find keys and find the right keys. And uh, in the church office, we got a cabinet full of keys and you try to match those to some particular need sometimes, like I did last. And, uh, I lost one and tried to replace it and then later found the one that was missing. It was mislabeled and it opened the lock and it was magical. And John says, this is the key. Do you want to be right with God? Do you really want to experience a right relationship with him? Here's the key. Confess your sin. Acknowledge your sin. And in so doing, acknowledge that he's got the only solution. He's, he's got the solution to your particular need. Now, as a Christian, uh, in a morning service like this, early service, most of you have been Christians for a long time. 
And you say, well, I gave my heart to Jesus back umpteen years ago. And I understand that and the, the key open and I know I'm a child of God. But John's writing not to the exclusion of that, but on top of that, he's talking about your daily experience. And while you're not going to lose your salvation, I believe in the security of your salvation, you can mess up your fellowship with God by sin. And John says, if you'll confess that, seek God's awareness, search the scriptures, allow God's spirit to speak to your heart and discover what's not right. He says, God can cleanse that. God can lift that. God can renew you in that. It's a powerful verse. If we'll just confess our sin, he is faithful. He wants to do it, and he is righteous or just. He's got a foundation upon which to do that, to cleanse you from all that stuff in your life. Isn't that incredible? If we say that we have not sinned, verse 10, we make him a liar because he says we have. And if we disagree with him, we're calling God a liar. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. It's not, uh, we may know it, we may love it, we may read it occasionally, but it's not the driving force on that day and that hour in our lives. That word is not central to the decisions that we're making and, and what we're prioritizing. So now that's what we looked at last week, and, and we want to look at two more verses this morning that build immediately on that. John didn't write verse numbers, and John didn't make chapter breaks. Uh, men did that a long, long time ago in 1560. Uh, but uh, there is that usually in our chapters, uh, in, in the New Testament, a break between verse 10 and what happens after that. But John's writing right on through. So the beginning of chapter 2 is the, the summation or the conclusion to chapter 1. It's my dear children... Uh, my little children, New American has it. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. <clears throat> now, John, if John was 20 uh, when Jesus was crucified, he's like 80 now. If it was 30, then he's 90 now. Uh, very advanced in age for that time. And so everybody seems like a child to him. Uh, but he's got a father's heart toward the church. And so he calls them children in a loving compassionate way my my family i want you to know and so i've i've written these things so that you don't sin but john you just said we do he says yeah but the goal is always that you don't and when you read all of first john you see that there's this uh the verbs kind of play games with your head but and john writes about an ongoing practice of sin and then the random shots of sin that we confess but he says i don't want sin to be the pattern Oh, yeah, it's going to hit in, in your life here and there, but don't let that be the pattern. And he says, I'm writing these things so that it's not the pattern, so that you rise above that in spiritual victory. That's the goal. If that wasn't your goal when you came here this morning, make it your goal. That's where we're headed in the Christian faith. And John says, that's why I'm writing this letter. That's why I wrote that gospel. That's why I've preached the gospel for 60 years since the days of Jesus. And then he adds this remarkable thought. Don't miss it. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You can translate it 
righteous Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ the righteous one and it's usually rendered something like that and that's better it's a little stronger you need to understand that Jesus is the righteous one Jesus is the answer and going all the way back to the days of William Tyndale who first translated uh, in the 1500s into English from the Greek text we have this word advocate don't you understand, church, that when you sin and you're dealing with sin and confession and overcoming, you have an advocate with the Father. You have someone on your side who wants you to win, to prevail, to have victory. You have an advocate with the Father. That's an interesting word there because John, you know, John's the author of this Letter. He's also the author of the Gospel of John. I take it to be the traditional son of Zebedee, brother of James, disciple of Jesus, is the author of all of this. And John writes his Gospel in the same time frame. And the, the, the best of that Gospel is the upper room discourse. John 13, 14, 15, 16, he prays in chapter 17. And there in that upper room, he has Jesus teaching the disciples. And then they break the bread and drink the wine and the first Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, and then out from there to the garden. And in that setting, Jesus says, it is good for you that I go away. They don't like that thought. Everything seems to be unraveling. They're going to lose him. Uh, they're not going to, it's just going to get really bad in the coming hours. And Jesus says, no, it's good that I go away because if I go away, I'll ask the Father and he will send another, meaning another of the same kind. And he talks about the helper. He talks about the helper in chapter 14 and, and again in chapter 16. And he says that helper, the Holy Spirit, uh, is your paraclete, paracletos. Now in 1 John, he uses the exact same word John does to describe Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is your helper. Jesus is your helper. The word literally means to be called alongside something or someone that's called alongside you. And John writes, and John, who knew better than anyone uh, what he's writing about here, says, you have Jesus, the righteous one, the perfect one, called alongside you as your advocate. He's on your side. He wants you to succeed spiritually. He wants you to find the victory that we sang about in the music this morning. He is your advocate. I thought about that. Now, let me give you a strange illustration. It'll take a minute uh, this morning, but this is a copy of one page uh, out of the uh, book about that thick that I worked on for my doctoral program 30 years ago this last summer. Oh, I can't believe that many years have gone by. I wrote uh, that paper at night in Millen, Georgia, uh, put my, oh, it's so primitive, my little word processor back then. Had little cassette tapes and all this stuff. It took a stack of tapes to put this on there. I worked on that, writing two or three pages every night after the kids went to bed, like from 9 till 11 o'clock, plugging along to, I had all that together. Finally, I thought, I think I'm done. And I mailed that paper, packaged it up and repackaged it and wrapped it in that and put it in another box and, and sent that off to Chicago to Dr. Sell, my mentor, first reader, 
the guy who really was going to be thumbs up or thumbs down on my work. And uh, I prayed and put it in the mail thinking I was basically done. I'd finished most of the classwork, and now here's this big paper in the mail. Some time went by, and eventually a, the package returned. It was the same papers, big box in there. And uh, I took a deep breath and opened it up and pulled it out. And on the front page, the very first page, and Dr. Sell used red ink, he put, good job. And then he says, I've made some suggestions. And I looked and I started to turn the pages. And he had managed somehow to get red ink on at least half the pages somewhere. You know, somebody was just tweaking this or a spelling or a, a word order or something. Sometimes it was some content or maybe you could put another word or two or sentence about this and all these suggestions. And, and now I'm holding this big stack of papers with red ink. And I was calling for the punter. You know, let's, uh, let's, this, this has gone on too long. Mercy, I, I, I don't know. And then I said, no, I think what I'll do is what I've been doing all along. Every night, I'm going to put the kids back in bed at 9 o'clock, and I'm going to do two or three pages. And I started really going about 10. They were just most of minor corrections. And I started doing about 10 pages a night, uh, working my way back up through that. So uh, within a couple of weeks or so, I had finished that up, and I wrapped it back up and put it back in the mail and sent it off to Chicago and got word back that it would be appropriate when I went for my last course in July to have an appointment to defend that paper. And you had to go before three people to do that. So I said, well, maybe I'm one step closer to this thing finally being over after all this time. I got there and, and my appointment was at the office of Dr. Timothy Warner. I'd met Dr. Warner in Michigan at Brown City Camp Meeting, Wendy's home church denomination there in Michigan. He was the featured speaker for the summer. And, and there he was now in the position of, of head of the whole doctoral program for Trinity. And so I went to his office and he came out. He couldn't have been nicer and friendlier. He said, now we've got to walk across campus to Dr. Sell's office, the guy with the red pen. We've got to walk over there. Uh, Dr. Benson, Warren Benson, went on from there to the Southern Seminary for a while and taught Christian education there. And he was the second reader. He says, Dr. Benson's not going to be here, but he sent some questions that we can ask you from him. Uh, but we need to go ahead and we'll walk on over to Dr. Sell's office. And along the trail, Dr. Warner started to open up. He says, I read your paper and I really liked it. Oh, yes, this is, this is sounding really good. He says, in fact, I remember reading where you wrote in there at one place that in writing all this and doing all this academic stuff, you were at risk of losing your own children because you get to get so caught up in writing about family life that you wouldn't have time for your family. He says, I can relate to that, and I really like what you had to say there. I said, well, I really like that you really like that. That's good. But we made it to Dr. Self's office, and we went in, and I'm thinking, I'm going to sit next to Dr. Warner if he liked it. I, you know, anyhow, they're in the room, and they start, and so well, Dr. Benson's not here, so we'll read his questions first. And they were all softballs. And Dr. Benson said, I like what you said on page 32. Would you like to say anything else more about that? Or you made a good point on page 60-something. Uh, how did you come up with that? Or what would you like to add to that? And I thought, man, this, this is going well. This is good. And then it was finally Dr. Sell, the guy with the red pen. It's finally his turn. And he, he kind of 
cranked it up a few notches and started asking me. He says, I, I read what you said, and I had written a section on Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, which were all marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness and those profound issues and what the church has said for hundreds of years about that and what the church was saying in, in the present time. And, and he started to take exception to some of the things that I was writing there. He says, how do you get that? How do you defend that? I said, well, uh, I, I thought I was defending it with the Bible. And I showed him the verses that I, he says, I know, but you know, this is the 20th century. It was the 20th century then. This is the 20th century. You, you're going to say you're going to go into a church, pastoring a church and stand on that? I said, well, uh, I think so. Um, I, I said, I think I'm in company with some pretty good people uh, down through church history and the, and the Protestant Reformation. And Dr. Warner, you know, the good guy, he's over there. He says, yeah, you know, like Calvin and Luther. I said, yeah, like he said, you know. Uh, and Dr. Sell just kept grilling me. And then he said, well, okay, okay. And then he said, you can just go down the hall and we'll call you when we're ready. And I walked down the hall to the water cooler at the end thinking, what in the world are they going to talk about now? I know uh, Dr. Warner's on my side and, and Dr. Benson wrote really nice things. And, but, oh, man, Dr. Sell, I, I love, I had had Dr. Sell as a teacher. And I, I really love him. But, boy, he was, he was serious in there. And I hardly made it to the water cooler before they hollered, hey, you can come on back. And I went back and sat back down. And, and they both smiled, big smiles. And they, we really like what you did. We, we, we like, really liked your paper and your defense of your paper. Dr. Sell said, you know, uh, I, I remember sending you back those 300 pages and with all that red ink and, I really like that you didn't complain, that you just made the corrections and sent it back up here. I was really impressed with that because usually people complain and, and you didn't complain. And, uh, but I like what you wrote. Now, on that day, I had an advocate. Dr. Warner was sitting there next to me and he, I knew he was on my side. And whatever came up in the discussion, I knew he was going to try to help me. He was almost trying to put words in my mouth. And, and, and it's almost like he was explaining it to Dr. Sell. And Dr. Sell was like, I understand that, you know. In that setting, I had one who was really sitting in judgment on me and one who was my advocate standing beside me or sitting beside me in that case. And when I came back from the water cooler, I realized they were both on my side. Now, that's a profound, if you'll think about it, that's a profound illustration of the Trinity and your spiritual predicament. And God the Father uh, sits on high in absolute perfect holiness, raising the standard to absolute perfection. And John says, but Jesus is your parakletos. He is your advocate. He is standing beside you. He is for you. In that situation that could be absolutely disastrous. Jesus is on your side. And John preserves that there. And he, he writes about the Holy Spirit being in you and, and being there as your helper. It is the design of God that you be helped. It is the design of God that you be uh, healed and restored and forgiven and victorious in your Christian walk. The role, we talk about the Trinity and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the three come together. Uh, they're not created to do that. They've always been. 
But they, they are, by very nature, so ordered for your spiritual success. With the Father saying, this is the standard. And Jesus is saying, but I will cover imperfections. I will cover sins. I will make it okay. And he's the perfect advocate, the perfect bridge. And it says in verse 2, and he himself, Jesus himself, is, the New American says, the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Propitiation. And you're saying, I can't spell that. I can't pronounce that. I don't know what that means, and I won't remember it. And it's a big, heavy-duty theological word. When the translators of the Revised Standard Version in the 1950s, my first Bible I ever owned was given to me by my church. It was a Revised Standard Version Bible, and they changed the word propitiation after all those years going back to the Reformers. It had been propitiation and they changed it to expiation. And you look the word up in the Greek lexicon, and it, can, it says it can be propitiation or expiation. And I know you're not going to remember either one of those words unless you're a real zealot. But So what's the difference? And they said, well, the RSV is a liberal, liberal Bible because it put expiation instead of propitiation. And there are guys that would go into a bookstore, and uh, if they wanted to find out if a Bible was usable or not, they'd turn to 1 John 2, 2 to see whether it was rendered as expiation or propitiation. The word really carries the baggage of both of those. Propitiation means a, a diverting of the wrath of God and that Jesus in his role deals with the wrath that's aimed at you because of the sinfulness in your life. And the word expiation uh, has to do with the cleansing of your soul and both of those are true and valid and both of those are on the basis of the finished work of the cross of Christ. So don't choose between them. Adopt both of them. The NIV translators uh, chose to avoid that discussion, and they said, He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus has built the bridge. Where you have failed, He has succeeded. Where you have drifted, He's remained true, and He is standing beside you, and He is your advocate. Don't, don't crash into the throne room of a holy God without an advocate. And don't show up with any advocate short of Jesus himself. Went to a funeral in St. Louis of another Christian tradition. And the, the speaker was saying to the family, the bereaved family, whose grandmother had now died. He was saying, now she's in heaven. And that's really good news for you because now you have another advocate. And, and she, you can pray to her and she will help you. I said, that's not in the Bible. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we only need one advocate because our advocate is absolutely perfect. Our advocate is unlimited in his potential and uh, helping you with your spiritual need. He's our propitiation. He's our expiation. He's our atoning sacrifice. He's the one called alongside of us to stand there with us in the face of the purity of God. That's what Jesus does for us. And John's writing his heart out to the church and saying, don't miss this. Confess your sin. Access this. And Jesus will stand with you and it will go well with your soul. Not just on judgment day somewhere down the road, but even today he will be with you. That's what he promised when he gave the Great Commission. He charged us, the church, with the responsibility of taking the gospel to the nations. And he said, in the old language, lo, I am with you, even to
to the end of the age. I'm there. I'm with you. You're not on your own. It's like riding a bicycle when you're a little kid and you look back and your mom or dad and they've got their hand on the, the seat of the bicycle and uh, when they finally turn loose, that's pretty scary. But you're not alone. Jesus is your advocate. He's your perfect, infallible advocate to address your spiritual need. And John says, I really, really, really want you to go to heaven someday, but I also want you to live victoriously now with Christ at your side, with truth in your heart, with godliness as your goal. This is what God has in store for you. Oh, my little children, he says, don't miss this. This is what God has for you. Join me in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for your purity and your perfection, your absolute holiness. We're grateful that our God is so perfect. And we're grateful this morning for our advocate, the Lord Jesus, who is our helper, who has come alongside of us, dying in our place, dying for our sin, diverting the judgment that we would deserve and cleansing our souls. And we're grateful for the victory that we have in Jesus. Help us, Lord, in our gratitude. And help us, Lord, in our obedience so that day by precious day we'll live more and more as you would have us live. So that we'd be more and more as a church, what you've called the church to be. So that we will be uh, those who come alongside our own community and bring spiritual encouragement. Thank you for this day and all the possibilities of it. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.